thank you for... There was lots of... sound like there were a lot of good conversation there. We might just allow everyone to hear uh, what you talked about in our group. So there doesn't have to be a group leader, although it sounds like there has been one uh, dedicated over here, the newly uh, three-decade, yes. Um, that could be a thing, who most recently turned 30 could report back to the other, to the group, in your groups. Um, but just uh, let us know, uh, <laughs> what did you guys chat about? Uh, we talk about holiness, um, like be, as being different or being set apart. Like those are like the m- main things we heard in Bible school or Christian upbringing. Um, that the idea of holiness is also embedded in old religions. Yeah, uh, someone might need to explain this one. That. Um, it's linked with arrogance and self-righteousness. Um, that it implies uh, an accountability to higher standards. Um, has to do with perfection, being special, being untouchable. Um, a state that is easy to fall apart from. It implies a lot of preform ideas that we might have not thought about deeply. Um, we wonder how does it fit in today's world. Um, we talk about holiness being something that happened to Christians, but it's also happening, and we're also called to be holy. Like we'd be like sanctified, but we're called to being saints. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. Sounds good. Well done. We talked about our feelings over here, so what's new? (laughs) Surprise, surprise. (laughs) That's right, that's right. Um, I think we talked a lot about our personal reactions to the word holy, um, actually, and uh, what came to us first was set apart. That's that's the, um, I, I think that's the, that's the jargon and the link that we've immediately made to what we've heard and I think what we said that meant was fundamentally different from everything else in the world. Um, uh, We had a bit of discussion about the word pure as well um, and that potentially relating um, but also the idea of purity and how that's kind of shifted over our lives. Um, Also the word, wait, what what, what did we say about like untouched? Oh yeah, um, the other thing like... um, Almost uh, early testament uh, stories of yeah you touch God or look at God and you die um, so untouchable. Um, also a little bit we talked a little bit similarly about um, the word holy feeling like a, a judgment on the on the unholy. Um, yeah yeah. Thank you. I'll take over from here. Um, No, I said that I don't necessarily like the word holy because I've heard it used mostly against people than in a good way. And so that's kind of what I reflected on, that there's some judgment around or attached to it. 
Okay, we also, um, we were a bit triggered as well. Um, and we were triggered back to a popular illustration um, in youth group about holiness. Um, and, it, it, you know, prepare, prepare yourself to think, oh my God, no wonder these people have such serious trauma issues later in life. Um, <laughs> but we had a, a, a two cup of milk um, demonstration. If you've seen it, if you've heard it, you're thinking, oh, I'm in for a ride. Um, and one was pure, beautiful milk, and, and, and that, that's God, and that's God's holiness. And um, you also have um, <laughs> a, a cup of milk that has, like, animal shit. Like, sometimes would actually, someone would get, like, physical, physical actual shit from their animal <laughs> and put it into this cup of milk. Right? And so, like, basically... Yes, this is, yes. This is a self-hating, this is a Calvinist, like, this is really serious. And it was, I think it was very traumatic for at least the two of us. <laughs> Basically, so you're like, you're like the cop and then the this, this, this shit is your sin, right? And would you, so here's, here's the question. Even if there was the tiniest little drop in there that you couldn't see, would you drink the cup? No, you're completely spoiled. There was always... Yeah. And after the demonstration, there was always that one kid in youth group who said, yeah, I'll drink it. Well, that's it. They actually did. <laughs> yeah, well, we had the physical. In any, in any, anyway... Um, so basically, you know, uh, th that tiny little piece of shit completely spoils the whole being. And, and basically what Jesus does is tips out your cup and replaces it with God's nice, clean um, cup. Sorry? Well, we can talk about that later. <laughs> I believe our Lord... <laughs> Actually... I believe our Lord himself said, please take this cup from me, so. Well, we started at Angels, and then uh, we went to, we did like word association, right? So then we were just throwing out words. Angel, Catholic, the Pope, set apart, Holy of Holies, Christmas, separate from the world. Purity, saving yourself for culture, uh, for marriage, um, being worthy, more works. And then we went into holy places, Jerusalem, nature, eunuchs. Is holiness collective versus individual? We were thinking about, have you ever called someone holy? And we did not talk about shit in milk. <laughs> Okay, so we had some interesting conversations as well. I think another thing that came up was like separate, set apart, different, um, keeping God's commands, um, holy is what God is, pure goodness, sinless, blameless. But I think um, one thing that we talked about is like if I was thinking like if we're made in the image of God, like then aren't we holy? Is everyone holy? And is everything holy? And how sort of like you were saying that idea that there's some, there's like a threshold and if you cross it, you're holy. And if you haven't crossed it, you're not. And usually like sex is weirdly one of those things that 
keeps you from being holy in whatever way. Um, and yeah, like the quote just came was that came to mind for me was um it, it was an AOC quote like the you know the wonderful U.S. politician and she was talking um about it was something with uh like a something in front of the Senate like trans health care bill or something like that and she was saying like in my religion tells me that everyone is holy so you're talking about is everyone holy is that in the Bible does it say that does it need to say that um yeah some of our thoughts. Nice, nicely done. If we were um, playing um, Bible discussion shots, which of course we don't, and we don't endorse that in this church, but I was banking on every group saying set apart. And so thank you for that. That was, I'm not shocked. Yeah, shots, shots. Maybe coffee right now. Um, This concept of holiness is something that I've thought about a lot because it started to disturb me a number of years ago. Um, the way that the church was presenting the concept of holiness. And part of why that started to mess with my head is because um, I went through a stage where I did a lot of work in the book of 1 Peter, which is this book in the New Testament. It's one of the shorter books, it's only like five chapters, and it's got heaps of stuff about like slavery and wives submit to your husbands and all this kind of stuff. And I spent a lot of time in there. I had written some papers and all this kind of stuff and taught some series and stuff like that. And right towards the beginning of that book, it quotes the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament where it says in a bunch of places in Leviticus, particularly uh, Leviticus chapters 11, 19 and 20, I think from memory, um, where God says to the people of Israel, be holy because I am holy. That's how it comes into our Bibles. Be holy because I am holy. Um, And that gets quoted at the beginning of 1 Peter. But I was just thinking a lot about what does that mean, be holy because I am holy or as I am holy, depending on your translation. Because I started to think about, well, what does it mean that God is holy? What does that actually mean, right? Because my experience of what's taught around holiness um, in the church or what's presented about what does it then look like for you and me to be holy, generally what that tends to look like is a set of rules, right? Here are the things that you have to do or not do in order to be holy in the world, yeah? So if you do these things, you're unholy, you've got shit in your cup. But if you don't do those things or you do these things, then you're okay, you're pure, you're clean, you're going to be holy. But I'm like, but it says, doesn't it say be holy as I am holy? Doesn't it say be holy because I am holy like this? Doesn't it somehow come from who God is? And I started thinking about God getting up in the morning and just going through the rules, you know, just having a quick look at the Ten Commandments again, just to double check. Did I break any of them yesterday? No, good. Didn't take my own name in vain. Yep, no, Sunday's my day off. We're good. We're good. I'm all right until then. Didn't break any rules. Excellent. I'm still holy. And that doesn't make sense, right? I don't think that God being holy is because God's really good at keeping the rules. I think it's something about who God is as a person. I think it's within her nature that she is holy. I don't think it's because there's a set of precepts or things that God avoids or doesn't avoid that makes God holy. So then what does it mean for us to be holy? And what's all this teaching about holiness in the Bible? So that's kind of what started my thinking. 
Um, and those of us who've grown up in, uh, in churches, like it's, there's a reason why that set apart phrase came out in every group. And it's because the word that in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible gets translated um, holy is this Hebrew word kadosh or kadesh. Um, and its literal meaning is set apart. Okay, you guessed it, set apart. Um, and that meaning of holiness is the one that's kind of most familiar to us from, from most religions, to be honest, whether it be Christianity and the way that we've been taught about holiness, whether it be Judaism, whether it be um, Buddhism or Hinduism and the, and the concept of a holy man or a holy person, that idea of holiness as set apart, as somehow different. So just thinking about how does that play out um, in the Old Testament, for example, Holy people and holy things are those that have been set apart from ordinary everyday use and are devoted to God. So in the temple where you're making sacrifices on an altar um, and burning fires and pouring out offerings and things like that, holy things are the pair of tongs that you can only use for the altar in the temple, for food offerings in the temple. You cannot take them home and use them for your mate's barbecue on the weekend because that set of tongs is holy. It is set apart to only be used in this area, yeah? And holy people are those who don't live ordinary lives because their lives are devoted to the temple or to the religion or to teaching or whatever the case might be. They're holy. They're not ordinary. They don't get involved in everyday life because that's unholy and messy and impure. They're set apart from that. Yeah? And there's kind of a couple of different ways in which um, the Bible in that context teaches us that God is holy. God is holy in the sense that he's set apart from creation. Like God is not a part of the creation, um, according to the Christian, the, the Christian Bible. Um, it's not that everything is God in that sense. God created is not a part of the creation. There's a separateness there between um, God and creation. There's also a sense that God is not like other gods that we he would hear about at that time in the ancient world. Um, God operates in a very, very different way. So when you've got rules in the Old Testament, the point of those rules is to teach this group of people, this Israelite group of people following this God to live very, very differently to the people around them so that you've got no child sacrifice and you've got boundaries around the way that you treat people and animals and creation and stuff. Does that make sense? Um, okay. So, but the problem with that, if we kind of just keep that understanding of holiness as being set apart and not for ordinary use and you can't get engaged with everyday stuff because that would make you impure and unholy, please explain Jesus. Yeah? Because the one thing that Jesus does, more explicitly than anything else, is breaks the set-apart boundary. The creator becomes a part of creation, yeah? Is born into a physical body, becomes a part of this physical world. And the creator, who is completely holy within herself, gets engaged in the messiness of ordinary, everyday life. Yeah? Is breastfed goes to the toilet, you know, um, plays in rivers and stuff that are just everyday rivers, hangs out with his friends, 
puts on just ordinary everyday clothes, just does the stuff that people does. God, who is so set apart and so holy that God could not possibly approach us or we could not come near because we're so filthy and terrible, this God inhabits creation and does the most ordinary, mundane, everyday things. And if you think through the story of the New Testament, the biggest criticism of Jesus from religious people is actually you're so ordinary and you hang out with people that are ordinary, that are defiled, that are impure. So if we're going to keep this concept in our mind that holiness is somehow being set apart and not getting involved with the wrong people or doing ordinary, impure, wrong things, you actually will, will have to Ditch the idea that Jesus is holy. Yeah? Because isn't the criticism of Jesus, wait a minute, you hang out with drunk people. Drunk people are not holy. You hang out with sex workers and prostitutes, and prostitutes are not holy. And you don't wash your hands properly before you go into the temple. You don't wash your hands properly before you eat. You don't do all of these things that are supposed to mark you as a holy, set-apart person. Jesus actually seems to do all of the opposite things, right? This is the one who touches and hangs out with, makes contact with lepers, with women caught in the act of adultery, with people who are like pushed to the very margins of religious society, Jesus is the one who walks towards them and engages with them and hangs out with them. And never once does he become unholy. So doesn't that mean that somehow our understanding of holiness needs to change? Add to that the fact that the whole understanding of holiness that we kind of started with is this idea that certain people are holy too, like there are holy men and holy women in certain religions. But then how do you make sense of, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God that is declared to every person who acknowledges Jesus. You're all priests. In other words, what the author is saying there in 1 Peter is, you are all holy. You're all holy people. You're all holy men and holy women and holy folks. You are holy. That's the declaration that's being made. And the work of God and the engagement in the things of God is no longer for special people and special pairs of tongs at special times. You are hereby holy and called to engage in the work of God. And that's how we get to holiness and justice cannot possibly be separated. So at the beginning, as you were kind of coming in and getting settled, we had a um, video playing up on the screen of Lisa Sharon Harper. And she's the author of this book, The Very Good Gospel, which is a fantastic book. Um, And basically what she was talking about is she was a worker at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, this um, Christian student organization in the States. Um, And she was like, her specialty was like, have you ever seen someone or been yourself one, someone who gives out little tracts with a summary of the gospel? like four points that will lead you to Jesus. Just go through these four points, pray the prayer at the end, you'll get saved. And she has an experience in life when she comes face to face with the massive injustice in the world and in her own family, um, who are people, her family has both people who have been uh, enslaved people of color in the States and people who were Cherokee Indians in in the States and went through just horrendous, horrendous injustice. And she comes to a point of looking at her little booklet with her four-point summary of the gospel about Jesus and imagines herself just handing that to them. 
going, here's the good news. And then basically looking at them and going, what the, what the, like I'm an enslaved woman and my job as a slave is to breed more slaves for my owner so that he can make more money. And you're giving me my little four-point summary of the gospel and telling me what great news it is to me. You are on crack. So if holiness means engaging in the world the way that Jesus did, that all of us are actually, if you want to say set apart, I actually think that's become an unhelpful term. The Greek word that is translated holy means clean. Um, And I think it means that we're meant to experience the refreshing cleansing of God and then help other people to understand that they're clean and beautiful and pure as they are. But anyway, that's another conversation. Um, We are meant to be people who are bringing that refreshing and cleanliness and the good news of the justice and the goodness of God to other people and acting out the heart of God. And that's where we get to what justice is. Does that make sense? That's all right. It was my imaginary watch the clock over there. Um, yeah, that's uh, very good, very interesting. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, which led us to, because when we were thinking, like, justice and holiness, they're so connected, they're interrelated, and if holiness is not about being being separate in the in the sense that it's being sacred not being able to mix with the common, um, that doesn't make sense. That justice is the way that we interact with the world and that um, leads us to this idea of good news, which um, Lisa Sharon Harper explains in that video, which is very good. It's 50 minutes on YouTube. Um, so that got me thinking about justice and my understanding of justice and how that relates to the stories of the Bible has both been formed by looking at the interactions of Jesus and the way that no person is too outside for Jesus and he is always meeting with people who are on the margins and has compassion for them and it's the people who are on the inside or the in crowd that he gets angry at for their exclusion, for their oppression, for taking advantage of those on the outside. And the other thing that has really uh, informed my, I guess, thinking about justice is the story of Exodus in the Bible. And for me, that's about the Israelites or the people of God or the Hebrew people, the the people that the Old Testament kind of tracks um, their story. It's about what their good news is. Because I think if you went up to a young Hebrew person and gave them a tract, even though that timeline is a bit weird because Jesus hadn't physically kind of come to the earth, yeah, um, it wouldn't make sense to them because uh, good news is going to be different for each of us and how we experience grace and beauty and redemption for each of us. So I'm going to speak a little bit about this idea of justice and exodus. And the Old Testament refers to God as the God who brought you out of Egypt. It refers to that like 32 times as opposed to God as creator. So this idea that 
Yes, which only talks about six times, yeah. And I was thinking, like, why is that? It's because, like, the liberation from Egypt and the memory of slavery for the Hebrew people was central to their identity, to their understanding of the way God related to to them and the way they thought about themselves. So just a bit of context, okay? So back... Back in, the, back in the time of uh, when uh, the Exodus story is, uh, what's it talking about? Um, Egypt was an empire that was built on the back of Israelite slave labour, essentially. Um, who knows if the pyramids were built by the Israelites, I don't know. Um, but at the beginning of Exodus, it says there's a new king that comes to power in Egypt. He says, look... The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we've got to deal with them um, because otherwise they're going to outnumber us and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight us and leave the country. So let's put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour and uh, and they will be uh, kept in their place, essentially. And so... uh, they worked them ruthlessly. The Egyptians worked the Israelites ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor um, in brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields, and they worked them ruthlessly. This is, says that multiple times in the first chapter of Exodus. And the Pharaoh, who's the king of Egypt, has all these unreasonable quotas and demands of the Israelites and treats them with Ridiculously inhumane conditions, okay? So we have an oppressed people. In Exodus 5, Pharaoh gives the order, you, you no longer, we're not going to supply the people with bricks, uh, straw for bricks anymore. They've got to gather their own straw, but we're going to keep the same quotas of how many bricks they've got to make. So it just keeps laying on this hardship, this ruthlessness. But we hear that God hears the cry of the Israelite people. The slaves cry out to God and say, we, we're dying here. We're struggling. And God hears and he sees and he acts. It says, the Lord says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now I am sending you, he's talking to Moses, to Pharaoh, to bring my people and the Israelites out of Egypt. So what was good news for the Israelites? It was this land of milk and honey. It was good, spacious land it was freedom freedom from oppression that was their good news and so we see in the story god rescues them from egypt six thousand men plus women and children they go through the red sea and he leads them into safety and then what happens right on the back of the Israelites experiencing that new freedom or experiencing that good news, God gives an invitation to bring about good news for others, to create a world that is good news. 
So God rescues them from Egypt and then he gives them what has become known as the law or the rules or the things that maybe we've thought is what makes us holy. But in Exodus 19, God links the Israelites' liberation to the commands that he's about to give. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be a treasured possession. And one Peter picks up on that same idea that you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So on the back of this exile, of this liberation, we get the law. And I don't think their God is laying down a set of new rules to keep the people in check or to control the people just as the Pharaoh wanted to control the people by making certain demands on them. I think the purpose of the law or or the, the kind of guideline or the rules that God gives is demonstrating to the people a new way to be human a new way of seeing the world and seeing others, a way for them to be good news to other people. So, for example, we think about how the Israelites were making bricks, using bricks to make uh, the city of Egypt greater. And we get to the fourth commandment, which says, six days you shall labor and do your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you should not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. And I feel like if we were to think about that command, not just like one day, don't go to work, make sure you NA on that day, or don't turn your light switch on that day, that kind of thing, we we miss the point. The point there for the Israelites is to remember that their work, their worth doesn't come from their work. Their worth doesn't come from the amount of bricks that they laid that day. Pharaoh's unreasonable brick quotas and inhumane conditions are a contrast to this essential rest that God commands them. So the law is teaching them how to be human, how to be a new way, uh, new way of good news in the world. And, and it keeps going, the law. You know, Exodus 22 talks about not charging interest, not mistreating and oppressing the foreigner. For you were once foreigners in Egypt. So there's this contrast, right? The things that you've experienced in slavery, in oppression, in being on the outside, in not having enough... Make the world so others don't experience that. That's the message there. I'm going to stop harping on for a moment. And we're going to watch a video, actually. And I might set that up. Um, and this... Oh, you're right. Um, you might... We'll turn off maybe the light there so we can see it. 
this is quite a powerful uh, spoken word poem by John McCurro. McCurro, always get his surname wrong. Um, and I guess it leads us to this next idea about what does justice look for us and how do, how do, we, how do we use that as a guiding principle? Is it turned off? You can, but there is a pub down the road. It's got this massive cauliflower on the top of it. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. I was just thinking, I'm going to switch out with you so you can make sure that gets working. I was just thinking as you were talking about the experience of being enslaved and then the law as teaching them what it looks like to live as a free person. So all of that, you know, you were a foreigner, so don't oppress foreigners because you know how crap that is. So don't do that to other people. And then I was thinking about maybe if, like if our understanding is that our holiness or our freedom in Christ or whatever you want to put it, if our understanding is that that comes from keeping the rules, right? that that's from based on keeping these laws and keeping those commandments, then it would make sense for you to try and enforce those rules and those laws on other people. Yeah? Does that make any sense? I'll try and explain further. Sometimes the, the church has a reputation not for declaring good news in the sense of come and let go of your shame. Come and don't experience fear anymore. Come and be loved exactly as you are. You start loved. Sometimes the reputation of the church is you need to keep the rules. These are the rules that we have that make us really happy. And you can tell we're really happy because look at my face. It's a happy face. It's a happy happy face. And so you need to keep the rules because these rules have brought me great freedom freedom, and that's why I live in the joy and the peace that you see characterizing my life. So keep the rules and you too can know the joy and the peace and the freedom that is characterizing my life right now. Look at it, look at it, you know you want it. But if you think that's what holiness is and it makes sense to force that onto other people. But my thing is I don't think that's what holiness is. I don't think that's what Jesus says. But if you understand holiness as being invited into the intention of creation in the first time, into God's intention for the way things were always meant to be, for the way that we treat other people and for actually engaging in God's work in terms of helping people to understand that they're loved and valued and they have no reason to live in shame, then that's the work of justice. That's doing everything that you can to lift off every cause of shame and fear and oppression from other people. Does that make sense? But it depends on how, where you understand your holiness is coming from. I met a man who saw the world differently, sat cross-legged, at his feet and he told me, remember the past, but cast your eyes forward. For tomorrow, our hope shall be a louder voice than our apathy. Our apathy shall finally take a step forward. Our steps forward shall lead us somewhere, mean something, hold meaning like friends, hold each other crying. I am crying for this world to change. 
tears of empathy and sometimes apathy. I cry today for tomorrow. Even these tears shall be wiped from our faces. Lift your cheeks, though they are wet. There is one who shall collect them yet. Hold them in his hands and call it the ocean. Beckon you to set sail. Turn your face to the horizon for tomorrow. The nooses drawn tight around the necks of the oppressed will be like halos, like the saints around their heads are guiding light for the rest of us. Let us see the way forward comes not through power and politic, but through small acts of courage and change, change, change us like loose coins are never going to fix this problem. So let us go deeper than just charity. Change us like sweatshops closing. Change us like politicians stop posing. Change us like half the women of the world don't have to be abused. Change us like somebody has to stand up for tomorrow. We shall not just talk of gender equality, but rather women who in total work two-thirds of the world's working hours will one day get paid more than just 10% of the world's income for tomorrow. We imagine a day when corners do not exist. Those years of muddy lips pressed against white skin, the many times she'd lie under the weight of a man's insecurity, forced into slavery, fingers that rub bruises into her flesh as the sweat of large men stain her breasts that are the tools of her trade street worker taking tricks on her corner. Imagine a day when corners do not exist. For tomorrow, the weapons will be piled high and Tanks left dry, drones in the sky, no more. We turn their swords into plowshares. I make a garden from your M16. I irrigate the earth from your death machine and hold out to you a meal for us all to sit at the same table. For tomorrow, Israeli and Palestinian shall sit down and have dinner again. The rich shall eat with the poor and the oppressor with the oppressed and they shall talk of forgiveness truth and reconciliation for tomorrow the betrayed shall no longer seek revenge and revenge shall no longer be found in the dictionary and neither shall poverty nor infant mortality nor hungry nor thirsty nor children searching through waste dumps oil pumps leaking the ocean 21 million in slavery no more for tomorrow we live in color for tomorrow we dance on the streets for tomorrow we look the other in the eye for tomorrow we embrace for tomorrow we are set free For today we crawl on our hands and knees Believing the tomorrow we are seeing Stretch our eyes forward Move our limbs Turn our heads toward the sound of liberation We wait And this waiting is an ache And this ache is a burden, heavy and hopeful. This ache is a back scratch, never quite reaching that sweet spot. And so we keep on scratching, we keep on moving, we keep on working, we keep on crawling, we keep going forward. We seek for tomorrow by acting today until this world is as it was always meant to be.
that is Joel McCary. You can see his name at the top there. He is a spoken word poet and an amazing, amazing um, a guy who I first encountered at the Justice Conference. Very amazing. And it points to this idea about acting now for something that we will see fulfilled in the future, in tomorrow. And I think that's another aspect of, of justice is that the Bible points to this day where all things will be restored, all tears will be wiped away, pain will be no more. And so justice is about trying to bring that kind of world about now, knowing that one day we will see it in its fullness, in its entirety. And, and so that gives us hope that we're on a trajectory towards this world being made right, this world being restored. Because otherwise, it feels like a pretty futile and hard road if we don't have that hope. And I think that's what can drive us forward. And, um, you know, that's what passages like, you know, you know when in, uh, in the Lord's Prayer it says, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's that idea of bringing about the completeness and the wholeness of heaven, of God being with us and having a, this uh, connection with him, bringing that to our present reality, to the now. And that's, and that's why we work for justice. Justice is a way of being. It's how we relate to the world. It's a framework. Um, Dr. Cornel West um, is a professor of like public philosophy at Harvard and he says that justice is what love looks like in public. Just as what love looks like in public. It's how we engage the world. And it's not a cause or a rally. And I think it can be easy for us to get overwhelmed in the amount of justice causes, I guess. Particularly with social media, we're surrounded and we can kind of find out about what things are happening in all places, in all corners of our world. That can be quite overwhelming but if justice is the way that we act in our everyday the way that we make decisions about where we live how we live what clothes we wear how we spend our money how we use our time all those kind of things if that's through a lens of what can I do to make the world a more beautiful place for people what can I do to make my patch more compassionate, more just, more fair? Then it doesn't rely on us signing every petition that might exist. Did we have a, another part here, Kaz, that we had intricately planned? Yeah, we were just talking about the vocation. vocation. Oh, yep. 
Did you want to chat about it? I'll make it quick, don't worry. One of the things that Bront was kind of quoting back to me is that um, I used to always talk about the difference between vocational ministry, which is kind of what we've talked about with holy men and holy women and holy people. So priests and pastors and ministers and nuns and certain people do the, the religious work um, and that is the vocation of ministry. Um, but I don't think that's actually what the New Testament in particular teaches, that only certain people should be doing ministry, should be doing the work of God, if you want. And so I used to talk a lot about full-time locational ministry, not vocational, but locational. And the idea is that every single one of us is called to full-time locational ministry. That is you living Jesus' way of life in your location wherever that might be, in your accounting firm, in your hairdressing salon, in your school, in your uni, um, in your social work, in your whatever the case might be, wherever it is that you're engaged in the world, you're in full-time locational ministry so that you relate to people as if they are worthy of inherent dignity, of inherent love, as if they are. And within that, as you're engaging in the world, as Bront said, there are so many causes. But what Are there particular things that you feel and hear set your heart racing a little bit, that they just get under your skin. I don't think, and one of the things we're saying is it's not wrong to sign every petition and to get involved in different causes. The challenge is if we think of justice only in terms of particular causes or some causes, um, either the task can feel overwhelming or we can feel that everyone else is letting us down if they're not involved in my cause. Yeah? And so the question for us becomes, how do I in my everyday life, in my full-time locational ministry, how do I live in a way that proclaims justice, that says you are worthy, you have value, you have dignity, whether that be loving the Tamil family that's lived in, moved into my hometown of Biloela, which is what one community did, or whether it be, um, uh, you know, getting really passionate about climate justice. Or whether it be, you know, for me, I've only realised in the last little while, I've been really thinking about this, I've realised the thing that's driving me at the moment in my cause for justice is advocacy for queer people of faith that think that they have to choose between their faith and their sexuality. And for me, I'm passionate about saying you don't have to choose. And there are places of safety and places of community where you can come and be loved and understand that you start loved. It's not something you ever had to, to earn. I'm passionate about that. And that for me is kind of my little, you know, but that doesn't mean I can't compost when I'm at home. That doesn't mean I can't go to climate rallies. That doesn't mean I can't, you know what I'm saying? That I don't care about anything else. I want to live in a way that declares this world has value and the people in it have value. Every single one of them. But my heart beats faster when I think about doing this particular thing. And so I'm going to do that with all my heart and soul, but I'm still going to celebrate the way that you do it in your way uh, and do what I can. Yeah, and so, like, for me, something that gets me going is, like, with my, I guess, line of work is empowering people for their bodies to function well again, for physically, for people to be able to engage in life and um, more fully. So that's... I guess the way sometimes that that lens of justice uh, is is present in my life, and um, 
yeah, and it looks different for everyone, but that's a way that I am then ushering in, yeah, one day our bodies are going to function perfectly. And I can be part of helping people get the full potential in the now. Kaz looks like she's queuing something else. No? No? Yep. So, what's in your patch? What's in your skill set? What's in your passion that you want to see made right? What's something that energizes you? Some of us might feel equipped to be able to tackle on those things. Some of us might feel like we need to seek out more info or skills or whatever to be able to work for justice in that particular sphere. But I think that's a good place for us to start. Where do you see God nudging you? Or where do you see the gap between what you hope the world could be like and what it is at present. And that's what justice is going to look like for you in your space. And for some of us, for some of you, it means coming to an understanding that what you are doing in your everyday life, it is holy. Like the way that you advocate for people in your workplaces is holy. The way that you notice people, that others walk past, that is holy and that is doing justice. And so recognising that as a thing of value because there's nothing more disempowering than feeling hopeless and insignificant. So we want to say to you tonight, you are holy. You know, I started off by saying that little Hebrew phrase, be holy because I am holy or be holy as I am holy. Um, there's a way that that's been translated that's turned it into this imperative of you've got to be holy because I'm holy, so you've got to do it. And you've got to get your act together and you've got to become holy. But um, the, part of the reason we read it that way is we've kind of got used to reading it a certain way, but the Hebrew is a little bit more ambiguous. And one of the ways that you can read it is you're holy because I'm holy. In fact, that's almost a direct translation from the holy. Not be, you must, turning into an imperative. But God says, I'm holy, so you're holy. Because you came from me and I made you and I've invited you into my family. I'm holy, so you're holy. And my prayer for this community is that you would rest in that tonight. That that burden of holiness as being set apart and keeping every rule, would be lifted off you. And you would hear tonight God whispering in your ear, I'm holy, so you're holy. I'm holy, so you're holy. Because that's when we can hear the invitation of Jesus to come and join me in my work. I'm holy, so you're holy, so let's hang out and do this justice stuff together. Let's teach people what it looks like to live in freedom. Yeah? Did you have anything else? 
Yeah. So we're going to um, finish tonight with a song that is a little bit of a benediction. Joel McCarrow, in that um, poem for tomorrow, talked about uh, swords being turned into plowshares, which is a, a, an image from the prophets um, in the Old Testament. And it's this idea of things that were weapons being turned into things that produce good. And some of you might have seen uh, on the socials in the last week, I actually shared um, a prayer, a song that is a prayer by an amazing um, non-binary artist in Canada who was asked to write a prayer for um, a church over there, I think in Toronto by memory, but anyway. um, And this is the prayer that they wrote, and it's called the Plowshare Prayer. And so we just wanted to finish tonight um, by playing this prayer and uh, hopefully letting it wash over you.
set boundaries and openly live. I pray that you feel you are worth never leaving. I pray that you know I will always believe you. I pray that you're heard. And I pray that this works. Amen. On behalf of the last and the least, on behalf of the anxious, depressed, and unseen, amen for the workers, the hungry, the houseless, amen for the lonely and recently spouseless, amen for the queers and their closeted peers, amen for the bullied who hold in their tears. Amen for the mothers of little black sons. Amen for the kids who grow up scared of guns. Amen for the addicts, the shamed and hungover. Amen for the callous, the wise and the sober. Amen for the ones who want life to be over. Amen for the leaders who lose their composure and amen for the parents who just lost their baby amen for the chronically ill and disabled amen for the children down at the border amen for the victims of our law and order I pray that your And I pray that this works. Amen. Um, what a what a beautiful and blessed evening we've had together. Um, 